This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Vish Chatterjee, the author of The Business Casual Yogi, Take Charge of Your Body, Mind, and Career. Vish Chatterjee is an accomplished business leader turned executive coach with a 20-year executive career spanning the automotive, technology, and startup industries. In parallel to his leadership career, he has studied the Indian wisdom traditions for the past two decades. Vish now coaches business leaders, blending Western management and Eastern wisdom, and teaches on a variety of topics at the intersection of business and spirituality. Vish holds a BS in Mechanical Engineering from Northwestern and an MBA from the University of Michigan. He completed his Executive Coach Certification at UC Berkeley, trained as a yoga teacher in a traditional Himalayan ashram, completed teaching certifications in Ayurveda and Meditation at the Chopra Center, and is a certified Vedic Astrologer. He is also a publicly elected board director of the Beach Cities Health District in Southern California. He is a married father of three and in his spare time loves to garden, bicycle, and fix things around the house. Meet Vish on headandheartinsights.com. Here is the interview with Vish Chatterjee. Vish Charity. Uh-huh. Well, I'm quite a, a multi-dimensional person. I, I wear many hats. I, uh, I'm a father and a husband, but also a yogi, a businessman, a coach, uh, an author, um, and, and really a student of the ancient Vedic tradition of ancient India. You wrote a book. It's titled The Business Casual Yogi, Take Charge of Your Body, Mind, and Career. So before I ask you specific questions about your book, I have these open questions, as I mentioned off record. The first one for you, Vish, had to be this one. What is life to you? Not what life is about, but what is this experience? This experience is a, a chance to connect to love. So and this is why I'm very inspired with the work that you're doing. Uh, we are born with a chance to find love with ourselves, in, into ourselves and with people around us and with, with uh, also finding what we love to do. So I think there's two purposes in life is one is find what you love to do and do it. And the other is find love for yourself and for humanity. What is love to you? What is your idea and understanding of what love is? So I'm coming from the spiritual tradition, uh, you know, a deep, deep background in spirituality. And so 
love is this um, sense of connectedness that exists inside all of us. And, you know, a lot of times people, when they do any kind of worship practice, they will find a sense of devotion, a sense of love and connection. Obviously, when you meet another human being and you fall in love, that love between two human beings sparks that divine love inside. And that's why people get so attracted to to, to love. Uh, but even loving of a children, it's the same thing. You start to connect to a deeper being inside of yourself. So I really believe love is is something that's within and deep inside of us that is just yearning for connection. You speak in your book about this kind of uh, disconnection that creates imbalances. And this is from what I understand your work is all about, rebalancing, which could lead us to this connectivity, to this understanding that we are already connected. That's right. When we, um, when we think about people who are very, very spiritually advanced, we, we call them in India, we call them the sadhus or the babas or the saints, um, these enlightened saints. When you ask them, what is the experience like? What is the experience of enlightenment? What is that experience of transcendence, transcendental existence like? They almost always reply that it's a feeling of extreme love, intoxicated with love. But it is in the way of reconnection with ourselves, isn't it, Vish? Finding this love. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Valerie. One of the things that um, has been interesting for in my study of this Vedic tradition was they described two ways of being what they called enlightened. And enlightenment obviously has many, many different definitions. But the idea is, how do you find light? And in many religious traditions, the light is outside. You you pray to a god, you pray to a deity, and then that god lights you from outside. And so you get enlightened from outside. But the other side of it is this non-duality, which is the the a lot of the, the yoga tradition, is the love comes from inside and the light comes from inside. So rather than praying to something outside, you're trying to connect to a divinity and a love that's inside. And so you're lit up from the inside. Both, both approaches are valid. It's just that, you know, are you looking for light outside or looking for light inside? And actually, it's everywhere. That love is everywhere. Another question I have for you is the opposite of life. What would the opposite of life be from your perspective? Well, the opposite of life is uh, is death um, and basically the lack of love. And so there's many people who are physically alive, but feel so alone or so, so feel so disconnected or feel so lost that they really aren't alive. They're not really living life. Um, but there's also people who physically died, but their spirit is so powerful. The legacy, the things that they left behind. So they've become very much alive. Do you believe in life after death in a sense of the soul's journey and yeah, spirits? Yes, for I mean, definitely as part of the yoga tradition, the, the entire Vedic system that was, you know, conceived eight, 10,000 years ago, believes in the concept of reincarnation and the idea that the soul is this enduring part of our being. And they, they say in the an ancient text called the Upanishads, that the soul is something where it, it never dies. Water cannot wet it. Fire cannot burn it. Wind cannot dry it. A knife cannot cut it. The soul endures. And so the soul uh, continues on and it shows up in different manifestations, in different bodies and different personalities. And you sort of, you have one body, you go through life in that body, in that role. And then 
that body, you know, it's time to move on. And so it's like you left your apartment, you go on to another apartment. So in a way, it never ends, does it? Or maybe it never gets started in the first place. Yeah, it's sort of like this, um, sometimes we use the analogy of the ocean. You have this, you know, vast ocean and each wave is our individual personality full of different shapes and colors and sizes and whitewash and turbulence and drama and, you know, the drama of human existence. But eventually when that wave crashes back down, it re-enters the ocean of consciousness. And maybe it comes up again and, you know. The purpose of life or the purpose of an individual life. So this is another topic you speak in your book too. I think you mentioned in a way of understanding your purpose, our purpose. So my question to you is, what is the purpose of your life at this time? So the word, uh, the Sanskrit word from, from the Vedic tradition is the word Dharma. And Dharma has many, many interpretations. And, and with many Sanskrit words, it takes half a book to write to explain one word. Okay. Uh, so Dharma is sort of this series and set of responsibilities to many different things. We have a responsibility to our parents, to our children, to our lovers, to our partners. We have a responsibility to our body to take care of the body, to take care of our, ourselves, to, to feed ourselves good food and good experiences. But then within that, there's also a calling, a certain sort of life purpose, so to speak, a, a personal mission. And so part of healthy living, part of well-being is honoring all of those different purposes that we have in life. And so when you ask the question, what is your purpose? I take it as what is my sort of inner gift and talent that I'm here to offer and serve society with, in addition to obviously taking care of myself and my body and my health and my parents and my children <laughs> and my spouse. So my, my individual purpose in life, I believe, is to take these teachings from eight, 10,000 years ago from this very elegant, sophisticated Vedic tradition and distill it down and offer it in a digestible way to the modern world and the modern existence. Um, because many of these teachings have been lost along the way and they're very hard to understand. And, you know, people are trying all different ways to try to understand what is yoga? What is meditation? What is Ayurveda? What is uh, Vedic astrology? What is the Vedic philosophy? It's very, very complex. And um, a lot of it's been diluted over the years. So my purpose really is to uh, draw from that tradition and offer it in an accessible way to the modern world. So I'm wondering when you discovered and found out uh, for sure that this was your gift. So it took a long journey. Um, I, you know, I was born into an Indian family um, and you know, a Hindu family, very particularly. My family was, was somewhat religious. But my father used to always talk about, oh, the philosophy of India and this Vedic this and the Vedas. And I was like, what does all that mean? And I didn't really know what it meant. And I sort of, you know, didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. And, you know, we'd, we'd hear about something on TV, a self-help person or a movie with some esoteric component to the movie. My dad said, oh, they got that from India. That came from the ancient tradition of Vedas. And I was like, what is he talking about? And so I went along my life, and as every, you know, many people in India, the, the, the kids are so, you must be an engineer, or a doctor, or a lawyer. And so I went to engineering school. I became an engineer. I worked in the engineering world. I, you know, worked then, went, did my MBA, worked in management, and got into more and more senior positions. I ended up starting a company and becoming the CEO of that company. So I didn't really think about these things much. 
And I really thought my purpose was to just become the CEO of a large company and make lots of money. But, you know, the purpose, your deeper purpose, at some point it has to come out. And some of us it comes, yeah, it just shows up. And sometimes it shows up through disease, you get sick. Sometimes it shows up through somebody you meet. Sometimes you have an accident. Um, and in my case, about um, a little over 20 years ago, I went trekking in the Himalayas alone. And I had an accident. I fell off, I fell off a mountain and I got hurt. And I end up finding my way and crawling my way to safety finally. And from that experience, ended up navigating my way to a place called Rishikesh in, uh, in the Himalayas. And it's a place where people are from all over the world go to study yoga and meditation. And I met a teacher there. His name was also Vish. His name is Yogrishi Vishvaketu. And he goes by Vishva. And my name is Vishvajit. So it's like, oh, I met the guy with the same name. And I ended up uh, learning yoga from him. So he taught me yoga, he taught me meditation, and we became very, very good friends. In fact, he's the co-author of the Business Casual Yogi. And I learned these techniques. I had exposure to this wisdom, and I used it as a way to reduce my stress and do better at becoming a CEO of a company one day. That's how I used it. So every morning I would get up, I would do yoga, I'd do meditation, and then I'd go out and try to conquer the world and, you know, uh, rose up in my career. But then about three years ago, this friend of mine, Vishwa, comes to town to Los Angeles and takes me out to dinner uh, with a very famous teacher friend of his whose name is Gurmukh Khalsa. And she's a very, very famous yogi. She was a yoga teacher to Michael Jackson and Madonna and all these celebrities in L.A. She started one of the first yoga studios in L.A. And she's sort of the, the head of the Kundalini yoga movement. And so she met me and asked, oh, Vish, nice to meet you. Where do you teach? It's like she looked into my soul and saw something that I didn't see. And I thought, wait, is she talking to me? Me? Teach? No, no, I, I don't teach. I said, no, 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 I'm not a teacher. I'm a, I'm a business guy. I run companies. I run divisions. I start businesses. In fact, I'm working on a startup right now. I, I don't teach. I'm just a student of this guy, this you know, Himalayan yogi. And she looked at me like I gave the wrong answer, like I was a kid in first grade giving the wrong answer. You know, and she put her finger up and she wagged it. She said, oh, you must not die this lifetime just being a student. You have so much wisdom and so many gifts to offer. You must teach. And so that's where the seed got planted. And, you know, magically, it's like, like you, you meet these beings Things in my life started reorienting. My startup started falling apart. My investors pulled out of the investment, my all sorts of drama. And then I thought, you know what? And then somebody reached out to me and said, hey, Vish, uh, would you consider coaching me? And I thought, well, I don't know what coaching is, but I'm an entrepreneur. So I'll say, yes, sure, I'll coach you. You know, I gave a rate and I started my first coaching client. And then she referred me and I got another referral. All of a sudden I had a coaching practice. And then I said, wait, what is this coaching? I need to understand what is coaching. And so then I went and started getting deeper into who I wanted to be as a healer and a helper of other people. And this is when I started to really understand that, oh, I'm able to coach business executives and business owners and leaders, but bringing this Eastern wisdom into modern Western MBA thinking. So now I'm an East meets West coach, and I really draw from this tradition to help uh, move people on their journey towards a more connected, loving life. So sometimes we are able to 
find, discover the gift ourselves. And sometimes it takes somebody else to poke <laughs> and to let us know that it has been my experience too. That's a, a very interesting thing. It's how stubborn we are. Yeah, what, what if, that's right. One of my uh, friends, you know, I'm involved in uh, local politics. And so my one of my uh, political, he's a city councilman here. He said, anyway, he's not necessarily a spiritual guy, but he just said, he says, Vish, you know, some people, the new universe nudges them. But for you, you got a swift kick in the butt. My next question is about success. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? Well, obviously, in the old days, success was what is my salary, what is my stock option, and what is my title and position. Um, and and I think many people in life go around looking for that. You know, what kind of a house do I have? What is my bank balance? But really, what I've come to understand now is success is really about a sense of contentment, contentment. And the Sanskrit word is santosha, santosha. And santosha basically means where you you're not craving anything. You're not jumping for something, but you're also very happy and content with what you have. You're not, you're living a life with no regrets and no unnecessary cravings, just a sense of contentment and happiness, joyfulness of where you are. Learning also, I think part of success can be measured by um, how rich is your life, not how rich is your bank account, but how rich is your life? How much time do you have to give to do the things that you really love doing. So if you can make your life one that you're doing all the things you really love to do, that to me is a successful life. What is healing? And is there such a thing as to be healed? Well, I think we're all on a journey of healing. We all, um, you know, as in the Buddhist tradition, for instance, they say that, you know, life is suffering. And so we are all trying to get better. It doesn't matter what your life situation is, you're trying to improve it. You're trying to heal and trying to get back to that connection that we talked about. And so any type of work that you do with your on yourself or with somebody's help to move you towards deeper connection to that ultimate divine love is healing. And sometimes it comes through, you know, in my case, sometimes I'm helping people using their business and improving their business as a way for them to learn the lessons they need to learn in order to progress on their journey of healing. And sometimes healing is actually, you know, somebody's sick and improving their health. Freedom, that's another question I often ask. What is freedom? What is to be free, finally, <laughs> to you? So in the yoga, in the yoga tradition, the word for uh, freedom is moksha. And moksha means well, sometimes people translate as enlightenment, but it's really a, a sense of freedom from attachment where a good thing happens, a bad thing happens, and you have the same reaction. You're not attached. You're, you're content either way. It doesn't matter if it goes this way or that way. I'm content. I'm, I'm happy. So the idea of moksha then comes into another word called jiva mukti which is the idea of getting this enlightenment or this sense of freedom while living an everyday normal life. Some humans, they go into a cave, they meditate for the rest of their lives living in caves, and that's how they find their freedom. But I believe for me, it's having this sense of freedom while living a normal life, raising children, 
being a husband, being involved in society, contributing to my community, running my business, all of that, but still developing that sense of freedom from attachment within the context of a normal living life. I would ask the question to you, is it possible to detach or find this freedom even within our family and attachment to love or attachment to loving others? Well, I think we, you know, there's a part of uh, of an obligation and a duty as part of our responsibility to take care of people that we love and to be there for them and to show them love. But at the same time, we have to understand, are we loving them for a selfish reason to make ourselves feel better? Or are we loving them in a in a in a in a way of just in service, where it's not a it's not to make you feel better, right? So I think that's where the attachment comes in. Is sometimes people love someone because it's it's for their own individual benefit, not actually for that other person. So that's where I think there's another piece of it. You can love somebody, but you don't have to be attached to them necessarily, or attached to them loving you back even. You know, sometimes, you know, I have clients where they have very difficult relationships with people in their family, where they literally can't be in the same room together, um, you know, not on talking terms. So there's a disconnection, but there's still a love possible. You can still love somebody. You don't always have to be with them. Um, and this happens a lot in toxic family relationships sometimes. So my last warm up question is about the challenges we have faced and we are still facing in 2020. So what lessons have you learned from this year? And also, do you have a vision for a new reality, a better reality? Well, I think, um, you know, for yogis, it hasn't been that difficult, um, to, to be honest. And, and when I, when I know within my clients and within my context, the people that are regular meditators, uh, people that practice yoga on a regular basis, they appreciate the time to be alone and to be still and to do less. And for me personally, I've been doing less. I've been more still. I've been more comfortable with my present moment. And I've had a lot more spiritual connection and experiences. Now, for a lot of people, it was shocking to have to be still. It was too much. They can't stand being still, being home, doing nothing. And it just drove them crazy. And I think the, the big question was, well, why can't you be still? Why can't you be comfortable with you? Uh, so the learning for me, and I was also a very busy, you know, extremely busy person pre-pandemic. I think I realized I was doing a lot of things that don't really serve me. And I was doing out of obligation. Somebody would say, oh, you need to do this. You need to sign up for this. Go do this. Go to this meeting. Go to this event. And I was just doing too many things that didn't really serve me. So I think one of the big lessons for me from the pandemic has been I'm very choosy about what I spend my time with now. I'm much more deliberate if I spend my time doing something. If it feels good, I do it. If it feels like it serves my broader purpose, I do it. And if it doesn't, I just say no. So I've gotten a lot better at saying no. And of course, my kids love it. They're like, Dad, you're here all the time now. You're with us. And I make time for them. You know, it used to be like, oh, I'm too busy to you know, play that little game. Whereas now it's like, of course, that's the most important thing. So I think a uh, vision for me post-pandemic will be to be very calculated in what I choose to spend my time on, to make sure that I only spend my time on things that serve me, not just doing things out of obligation to people that, you know, uh, are distract from the, the, the true richness of life. So how did you become a writer, Vish? 
Well, I never really thought I was a writer because I was trained as an engineer. Um, I went to engineering school and, um, you know, I, I always thought of the world in a very black and white way. But I think what happened is, you know, taking the engineer's mind and being able to deconstruct complicated things into simple parts is one of those skills that is very good in, in this particular type of nonfiction writing is taking very complex subjects like Ayurveda or yoga or prana or chakra systems or uh, life purpose and, and dharma and understanding them. I think the engineer's mind is able to understand these complicated topics and then tease them and take them apart into their constituent pieces and then build them back together. And then I guess the next skill which has come through this writing process was delivering them in a very digestible way for normal human beings. So um, I never, you know, sort of identified as a writer necessarily until the idea for the book came about. And it was actually at a yoga conference. There was a, a big yoga festival in, in the California desert. In, it's called Bhakti Fest. And all these yogis get together. I don't know, 10,000 yogis get together and practice yoga and dance and sing in the desert over every September pre-pandemic. And Yogi Shivishwaketu, my, my friend and teacher, uh, would teach at that festival every year. And so one year I decided to accompany him and, and be his his volunteer, his assistant. So I'd carry his bags, open the doors for him, and he would teach this big class of 140 people. And I would go and adjust and help everybody just sort of, you know, get the pose correctly and, you know, offer any kind of assistance needed. And it just struck me. I said, you know what? This man has so much brilliant insight and connection to the yoga tradition. He's a Himalayan yogi. He's lived in caves in the Himalayas. He studied under enlightened saints. He knows this tradition, but he can't communicate it. He, he doesn't have the language skills, nor is it his natural way to talk about these subjects. And he definitely doesn't know the regular everyday business world that I was a part of. And I thought, when I think of my business tribe, so to speak, these are people that work and work and work, and they're completely imbalanced. They spend you know, 12, 14 hours a day busting their hump, trying to make it in the world, while their family falls apart, their relationships with their children fall apart, they get the money, but they lose a lot of other things along the way. And they are lacking balance. And these things that I have access to, I could offer to this world and potentially change the corporate world. And if we have a more balanced, conscious corporate world, it affects our entire society. Corporations are the ones that make decisions that impact our society, whether environmental decisions or societal decisions or economic decisions, they affect a lot of us. So could I improve consciousness in that world? And can I be the bridge between this Himalayan yogi and the everyday modern world that I'm a part of? And so that's when the idea for the book came about. And we pitched the idea to, a, to, to the publisher, Mandala Publishing, and they just loved the idea. And so then it became time to start writing. And that was when um, I really realized I have a talent for writing. I have an ability to take these complicated subjects and translate them and bring them to a very understandable level for the audience that I was targeting. Uh, so this writing ability sort of developed along the process of writing the book. Talk to me for a moment about the misconceptions about yoga, the ideas um, most of us have about yoga and meditation. Oh, such a good question, Valerie. This is <laughs> a big one. So, um, so the, the original system comes from this Vedic tradition, which is massive. Um, the Vedic 
literature could fill two or three floors of a library. It covers everything. And it was developed by a, a civilization that existed 10, 15,000 years ago um, called the Indus River Valley Civilization. The Indus River Valley was a, was a location where present-day India, Afghanistan, and Pakistan are at the foothills of the Himalayas. And these were meditators, and they meditated hour after hour, day after day, generation after generation, and through meditation discovered insights into human consciousness, human psychology, human anatomy and physiology, into the nature of the universe, the nature of the planets, and their influence on our crops and plants and beings, they basically tried to understand what is this universe? What is the meaning of all of this? And they passed these insights in oral tradition for thousands of years until about five, 8,000 years ago when they finally wrote these down in texts known as the Vedas. And these texts cover everything from Ayurveda, mind-body medicine, to musical systems, to spatial orientation of how to build buildings and structures in orientation with the, with the planetary forces, to, to treatises on Vedic astrology and understanding what, what influence do the planets have on our mind and our lives, to how do we improve our own consciousness through techniques. And these techniques became part of what is now known as the yoga tradition, the Raja yoga tradition. So certain ways to move the body, put the body in certain situations, uh, poses, breathe certain ways, live certain lifestyles to then cultivate deeper states of consciousness and awareness, ultimately through meditation. So there's this umbrella system. And in that umbrella system, one piece of it is yoga, which means union with the divine. And within that, there's these four paths of yoga, you know, spirit yoga of using the mind to understand consciousness, using devotional practices, using practices of service, and using very specific techniques. And within the very specific techniques, there were eight limbs, eight different methodologies. And within that, one of the pieces was the yoga that you see done in a yoga studio on the mat. So I guess that's the misconception is somebody goes to the gym to do yoga and they're stretching their body and they think, oh, yoga is about stretching. But the body work is one piece of eight different pieces that have to come together, which is one of four different paths of yoga, which is one umbrella philosophy amongst, let's say, 15 different approaches. So, so you start to realize like what, what the misconception of yoga is that it's just simple stretching on the mat, but what it actually is, is an entire system of living in a balanced, more conscious way to lead to that freedom from attachment. That reminds me of um, one of the messages from Krishnamurti. I think that's what he says. He actually makes fun of yoga in the sense of using it for exercise only. Yeah, exactly. And and I think Krishnamurti is, is brilliant in, in the way he explained that. And my purpose with this book, The Business Casual Yogi, was using these the, the full system, not just the yoga on the mat, but all of the eight limbs of it, and all the different four paths, and all the different uh, ancillary philosophies, all the side, like Ayurveda, like what is your diet lifestyle to serve your unique constitution, using all of that to help people find more balance and happiness in their life while working a regular job. 
In the book, you say uh, in a very interesting way, you wrote, most of us in Western society are not only uncomfortable just being, we are also uncomfortable if others are just being and not doing. Why is that? Well, it's it raises insecurities because, um, and this is part of the, the, the what I talk about in the book is that as a society, as an industrialized society, we believe that the more we work, the more success we will have. And the more success we have, the bigger car, home, bank account, whatever we can have. And if we don't do that, we're going to fall behind and we're terrified of that. So we have this sort of, I mean, Westerners call it the rat race. There's a rat race, a hamster wheel, and you're just running on the wheel. And so I'm in this wheel. I'm running away as fast as I can to earn more money, work harder. If I don't work hard, then my boss will fire me and replace me with somebody else. So run, run, run. And then I see somebody else who's not on the wheel, not running, just sitting and smiling. And I think, what the hell is this guy doing? Like, that's not fair. This doesn't make sense. And so that's the frustration that comes about. Like, wait, that's what's going on here. And we, we just can't compute. It's like our circuits blow. Um, and that's what I opened the book with is that, you know, when you, when you ask somebody, you know, how are you doing? Everybody says, oh, I'm so busy. I've got so much going on. I'm doing so many things. And what they're trying to tell you is, look how important I am. Look how great I am because I'm important. And if you ask somebody, well, I'm not doing anything, like that's what happened when I opened the book. I talked about a story of somebody I met who's like, I don't do anything. And I looked at him. I was like, it's not that doesn't compute. It doesn't work for me. What the hell? You must be doing something. You have these guidelines for a societal interaction. I love those. You have minimizing violence, increasing truthfulness, nice dealing, positive use of sexual energies, not being overly attached to things. Talk to me about these guidelines, Vish. Yeah, so the yoga system, and anyone who's done a, a, a yoga training or yoga teacher uh, uh, development, they've come across what are called the eight limbs of yoga, known as ashtanga. Ashta means eight, anga means limbs, the eight limbs of yoga. And so these these are sort of eight different things that you do in yoga in order to ultimately reach this state of bliss. That's the goal of it. And so before you even start doing yoga asanas, which the yoga poses, or before you even start doing breath work, breathing techniques, before you even start meditation techniques, you're supposed to get a certain things in your life in order, the choices that you make, the way you live life. And these are called the yamas and niyamas. And they're basically guidelines of how to live in a more balanced way. So that's the first two limbs of yoga are how do you interact with society and how do you take care of yourself? And they include things like you know, speaking the truth, not being violent towards others, um, you know, not uh, overly grasping thing at things, not, not you know, this idea of santosha and contentment, uh, the idea of keeping yourself personally clean, keeping your workspace and your, your, your desk, let's say, clutter-free and clean. So these are all sort of the beginnings of it. So it's sort of like the first stages is get your life in order, get, get your guidelines in place. And I found that, um, you know, one of the, um, one of the people that read my book very early on, he was a, a senior executive, an executive vice president at Sony, uh, Sony pictures. And he found those guidelines to be the most fascinating thing of the book for him. And he just started implementing those. And so you get a lot of benefit, even if you just practice one or two of the eight limbs. And obviously they all build on each other. 
So you start with the eight limbs, you start with the first limb, second limb, which are yamas, niyamas, lifestyle guidelines and restrictions, and they lay a foundation. So when you do show up on your yoga mat to do the exercise of the body and the energetic system, they ex get accelerated. So if you're sitting there all day being violent to people or telling lies and t not telling the truth and doing all this sort of bad stuff, when you show up on the yoga mat, you're almost not getting the benefits. So you start with getting your life in order. You start with some discipline around your lifestyle. Then as you do these practices, they have an accelerating effect. And then as you do the yoga work, the, the hatha yoga, the, the yoga on the mat, you start doing the breath work and pranayama breathing techniques. You start doing meditation. You start to have an acceleration in the transformation of your life. You mentioned something about that we have lost our ability to connect with our intuition. Mm -hmm. So intuition, that is such a, an interesting subject. So my question to you is, how do we learn to connect with our intuition? Yeah, so I've, you know, in, in business, people always talk about, oh, trust your gut instinct. And I used to wonder, what do they mean by gut? What is the gut feel? I have a gut feeling and, you know, my gut never is never wrong. And as an engineer, obviously, I have a gut feeling. And then my engineering mind says, no, 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 that's wrong. Let's think about this logically. And then I come up with a completely different way of doing something because of the logic. And then later on, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I trusted my gut. I wish I trust my gut. And so I think our gut instinct is our intuition and our intuition is a deeper part of our being that just knows things, that really, really knows things. It doesn't need a lot of logical calculation. It just knows what is right and what is wrong for us. And I believe from my work, um, and this is what I've talked about in the book, that the intuition or the gut resides in what the yogis call the chakra system. It's part of our energetic body. And what yoga does is it specifically works not only the muscles and bones and joints and you know, hormonal systems, but it also works the energetic system of our body. It helps clear the energetic channels. So we start to have a deeper and more powerful connection to that instinct or that gut or that intuition. And so we start to make decisions in a much better way of things that really serve us. We get better, for instance, at saying no to things that don't serve our deeper purpose and saying yes to things that really serve us. And so, you know, intuition is sort of the deeper us. And just as you you remembered, I talked about intuition. I remembered you talked about programming. You just mentioned the word the programmer, and people people work as if they're in a program. So you know, just like a computer, our body is like the hardware, and our mind is like the software, and it just keeps following these pre-programmed loops over and over and over again. But there is also a programmer in us that can reprogram the software. The hardware is what it is. But the software, the mind can be reprogrammed. And this all the self-help literature around mindset and changing your mindset and positive psychology is basically asking you to reprogram your mind. And so what the yoga's tradition does, what meditation does very specifically, it allows you to transcend the body, transcend the mind, so transcend the hardware, transcend the software, and go to the level of programmer. And the program is where the intuition is. The program is the one who can then reprogram the mind and the body to be more in line with a enlightened way of living. How do we know when we are listening to the right voice, to the intuition and not our programming? 
Well, it's hard because it's confusing, right? Sometimes you're like, wait, was that my intuition or was that my logic? Which one was it? Um, and so we have to be able to tune into these systems better. And so one of the things I, I teach is, uh, you know, there's this chakra system, obviously, and, and uh, you know, it's very complicated to explain what that is, but I, I talk about it in the book. I try my best to explain the chakra system in a simple way. But one of the most interesting chakras is the heart chakra. Because the heart is where you feel things. You can really feel, you feel love in the heart, right? And so the heart chakra has a very specific mantra to activate it. And it just so happens that mantra is the mantra yum, yum. And so if somebody were to do a heart-centered chakra uh, sound work, they would close their eyes, they would rest their energy on their heart, and they would chant yum, yum yum and they'd feel the heart vibrate and that sort of you know clears that chakra and makes it more open so yum also sounds like yummy like something yummy food right so the opposite to that is the word yuck like yucky so very simply in life if there's something you have to make a decision about let's say you look at a menu of a restaurant or you have to decide do i go this way or that way do i take this life decision or that life decision. You write them down or put them on a piece of paper, look at them and, and tune into your heart and say, do I hear yum or do I hear yuck? And based on that feeling, you, you're connecting to your intuition. You don't let the logical mind interfere. Uh, you talk about, I think, musical, yeah, community vibration and musical vibration. That's doing that work, be, becoming more in alignment, being around those energies. Um, not the thing you talk about that I really like. We're almost at the end, but your book has, is so rich, <laughs> so so much that, um, boy, I have to go back, actually. And um, You talk about mental imbalances, the symptoms. So you mentioned anger, anxiety, fear, and others. And you also have physical imbalances, the symptoms for that, skin irritation, inflammation, and so many others. I love this. You have a system where it's uh, understanding our, our Veda type, so we can understand the nature of our imbalances. And then you have these, I don't know how to pronounce them. Yes, Vata, Pitta, and Kapha. Yes. Yeah, and then you have the physical characteristics and we can <clears throat> learn to identify which one uh, relates to us and our nature. And that's, it was so easy for me to know. Oh, good. Yeah, for, for your listeners, I think the, the simple uh, understanding of this is there's a whole science or, or system that's a sister to yoga, which is called Ayurveda. And Ayurveda is the science of life, is basically the translation of that. And it's an understanding of how to heal ourselves on a physical level and on a mental level. So there's a whole system of psychology and uh, physicality, like health and nutrition around, um, you know, developed through Ayurveda. And Ayurveda recognized that we're all different. It's not the same medicine or the same lifestyle or the same food choices for every single person. And so that's, you know, Western nutrition, it's like, well, this is the best thing for everybody. But in Vedic, in Ayurvedic nutrition, it's, well, it depends on your unique personality type, your unique mind-body constitution. And the mind-body constitution is known as a dosha. It's like, what is your particular unique mind and body and based on that you have to make different dietary choices and so vata pitta and kapha are these three different let's say archetypes of being and vata is air a lot of air element people who are very creative and bubbly and enthusiastic and sort of moving and they can't sit still and pitta is the archetype of fire where they're 
get it done and, you know, make things happen and task oriented and, you know, like very strong type of personalities, very judgmental and critical. And kafar is the earth element, people who are just very grounded and very stable and sort of don't like to move a lot. They, they like to sleep in and they just sort of enjoy just being. And so we all have a little bit of all of these and we all can recognize the vata people who are a little bit skinnier and always moving and always feeling cold and the pitta people who are always feeling hot and a little bit red in their face and, you know, getting angry at everybody. And the kapha people, are, you know, a little bit, sometimes a little extra weight and they just, you know, are more, more relaxed. And so we all have this and depending on that, there's different foods that either make it worse or make it better. So that's, you know, it's beautiful that you're able to, both you and your husband were able to identify what you are from the book, from the quiz in the book, and then make choices in your life based on, you know, those tendencies. And we're almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you. I call them mm -hmm. final questions. Before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to read a passage from the book. Let me see what, uh, what shows up. Oh, here we go. The Eight Limbs of Yoga, and that's what just opened up to. So um, so this is what's interesting is we we have a, a medical crisis right now. So I, I talked about how we have this current, um, current medical crisis. We face limited access to care and incredible expenses associated with medical treatment. People are shifting towards well-being and preventative health measures, which the Vedic system is specifically equipped to supply. It is and always has been simple, common sense health and wellness for the masses. We as individuals can take charge of our own mental and physical health rather than letting ourselves become beholden to an overburdened and expensive system. In fact, in ancient India, physicians would be compensated at the end of the year if no one got sick. Today, we incentivize physicians and pharmaceutical companies to keep us sick. So I think it's very relevant for this time uh, that we're facing where we're just too much at the mercy of the medical system and we need to take care of ourselves first. And I sometimes call it DIY healthcare. Before you get really sick, take care of yourself. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Uh, at this time, no. Uh, I'm living just the most wonderful life. I feel very, very blessed and very happy that I found that. Uh, and it's all been in my mind. But if you'd asked me five years ago, I would have given you a whole list of things. Um, and I'm happy to say I'm living that list now. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Uh, happiness is what you make of life. So it's, it's up to you. It's in your control. Um, yeah, and I would say that we have a lot more power and potential in us than many of us understand. And all we have to do is tap into it. Thank you so much, Vish, again, for your wisdom, your work, your mission, your presence, authentic presence. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? 
Uh, thank you for this opportunity um, to be on your show and, and to give me the opportunity to, to talk about where I might be found. Uh, I'm on Instagram as The Business Casual Yogi. I'm also on Facebook. I have a page that is The Business Casual Yogi. And on LinkedIn, you can find me on Vish Chatterjee. Many of my business clients find me on LinkedIn. Uh, the book has its own website, thebusinesscasualyogi.com. And there you can learn about me. You can also learn about my uh, co-author, Yogrishi Vishwaketu. And from there, you can find our respective uh, websites. My coaching practice is called Head and Heart Insights, and uh, there's a website, headandheartinsights.com. And I coach uh, business leaders, uh, business executives, normal people, and I use a combination of many of the things I talk about in the book, a combination of Ayurveda, mind-body medicine, breathing techniques, yoga techniques, Western MBA-style coaching techniques, uh, business strategy, planning, branding, all of that stuff. Um, as well as I practice Vedic astrology, which is a, a very uh, much more precise system of understanding the planets, where they are in the sky, and how they actually impact your day-to-day -day life. And a lot of times I'll find I'm working with uh, CEOs of companies, helping them with business strategy based on um, planetary influences on their own personal life. And so we'll make strategies and plans that are lined up with you know, you want to get the stars aligned towards what, what it is you're trying to do. Uh, so, yeah, it's a combination of East meets West, esoteric meets practical. Thank you so much again, Vish, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Vish Chatterjee and his work, please visit headandheartinsights.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.